Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Every growing economy in the world is putting stress on the environment and the ecosystem, and few economic theories take full account of the environment or the ecosystem, which means these theories provide little to no adequate solutions to the stress being put on our planet. This is why I have been drawn to steady-state economics or ecological economics and why I have an ongoing series about this economic option. For those of you who have been listening to this podcast, you know that I have already interviewed two steady-state economists, Rob Dietz and Brian Check. If you haven't heard those interviews and would like to, Rob Dietz's interview is Episode 5, and Brian Check's interview is episode 20. But the pioneer, the trailblazer, the visionary that has been the front runner in this economic option is Herman Daly. I learned both about Dr. Daly and ecological or steady state economics from the book that he co authored with process theologian John Cobb titled For the Common Good Redirecting the Economy toward community, the environment, and a sustainable future. I continued to gain understanding of steady-state or ecological economics from the textbook that Dr. Daly co-authored with Joshua Farley titled Ecological Economics, Principles, and Applications. Dr. Daly is Emeritus Professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. He previously taught economics at Louisiana State University and served as senior economist in the environmental department of the World Bank. He is co-founder and associate editor of the Journal of Ecological Economics and has written over 100 articles and numerous books. So I am deeply honored, and it is with great pleasure that I introduce to you my guest today, Dr. Herman Daly. Well, welcome, Herman. Thank you for being with me today. My pleasure. Let's begin by seeing if I understand correctly. Um, You say that we are now living in a full world, which will soon lead to, or if it hasn't already led to, um, uneconomic growth, and that the solution is to move from a growth economy to a steady-state economy. Is that a fair summary of steady-state economics? It's a very fair summary of what I think, yeah. Okay. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, Talk about what it means that we are in a full world. Okay. Um, Well... To take just a short example, I mean, when I was born, I'm 82 years old. When I was born into this world, we uh, we had about two billion population. Now we're pushing, uh, beginning to push upon eight billion. So it'd be a fourfold increase in population during my lifetime, and your and others. Uh, and the populations, it's not just the population of human beings, it's also the population of automobiles, artifacts of all kinds, uh, cell phones, houses, refrigerators, all the things we make 
which are basically extensions of the human body. So uh, our cell phones extend our ears and our eyes, our cars extend our legs and so forth and so on. So, and, and all of these things, human bodies plus extensions of human bodies, are what the physicists call dissipative structures. That is, their natural tendency is to fall apart. And when you get old, you feel that. Uh, <laughs> but it happens to all sorts of things. Uh, and that's basically entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, we don't need to get into that necessarily. So what do I mean by a full world? Well, when we have such a large number of population of people and things, that the maintenance flow of replacement, of maintenance and, and replacement of this huge stock, a population of things, if it's so large that the ecosphere, the environment, cannot reproduce all the resources that are needed, and it cannot absorb all of the waste that we generate from all of those things, so the natural biogeochemical cycles can no longer regenerate the resources and absorb the waste, then the world is, is full. In fact, it's more than full. In the past, it hasn't been full. It's been relatively empty, or I should say empty of us and our stuff, but relatively full of what was there before, of wildlife, of natural resources and other things. So... Uh, we've, we've sort of hit, a, I think, a kind of a turning point in which the you might look at it and say, what is the scarce factor of new production? In the past, the scarce factor was labor and capital. If you had more labor and capital, you could get more production. Now, the scarce factor, we've got plenty of labor and capital now. The scarce factor is remaining natural resources and natural services. So it, it doesn't help too much to increase uh, population, and um, that doesn't give us more resource. For example, uh, if you increase the number of fishing boats and fishermen, you're not really going to increase the number of caught fish. You're just going to trade them off between more boats because the limiting factor is the number of fish in the sea and their capacity to reproduce. So Economic logic tells you that you should economize on and maximize the productivity of the limiting factor. In the past, the limiting factor was, was labor and capital. So we economized and maximized its productivity. But nowadays, that's changed. And it's the limiting factor is the remaining natural resources. So this is a huge shift in the pattern of scarcity. And I think uh, economists, or at least the major schools of economics, have not really changed accordingly. And so that's the idea of a full world or an empty world. And, and the steady state is a way of adapting to that new condition. Well, you, you talked about um, uneconomic growth. What does that mean? Well, that means continuing in the way that we have uh, been going in the past. Um, we, um, we've reached a state where the, where the worth, the value 
of new production at the margin is less than the cost of new production. So in other words, the cost in terms of depletion and pollution of the basic resources of the earth, that cost is now greater than the worth of the new product. So growth, that wasn't the case in the past. In the past, we had plenty of trees, we had plenty of fish, didn't matter, you know, if you took some. Uh, we weren't destroying the capacity of the earth to support life, even in trivial ways. Now we're doing that in major ways. And so the costs, which have heretofore not been counted, these costs of production outweigh the benefits of the new production at the current level. That's the idea of uneconomic growth. Okay. And steady state means? That idea goes back to the classical economists, uh, Adam Smith and uh, Ricardo, and, and particularly John Stuart Mill, who was the, the one who emphasized it the most because he, was, he thought it was a good thing, whereas the other was, sort of thought it was too bad. Uh, it means a constant population, birth rates equal to death rates, and a constant stock of physical capital. Uh, new production equals new equals depreciation or uh, consumption. So the stock of, of your total goods, capital, including consumer durables, your total stock of capital stays physically pretty constant, and the total population stays pretty constant. And uh, that was the definition of the classical economist. Now, nowadays we've added to that a, another little condition. We said that uh, they're main con maintained constant by low birth rates equal to low death rates, and low production rates equal to low depreciation rates. Why? Because because that means that maximizes life expectancy. If, if you have a, a constant population maintained by high birth rates and high death rates, then your life expectancy is low. And we would value higher life expectancy, so we would want lower birth and death rates. And the same thing for the population of, of artifacts or commodities. We would like them to last longer, be more durable. Uh, so that's the fundamental idea. It's just to slow down the, the rate at which we use the earth uh, by limiting the size of the population and the size of per capita income to a level that is within the regenerative capacities of the natural system. Well, you talk about the, uh, the difference between growth and development. Explain that. Uh, yes. Um, Growth is, is, in our definition in ecological economics, growth is a physical concept. Uh, things, when something grows, it gets physically bigger, either by assimilation or accretion, it, it just gets bigger. It's physical. Development is a qualitative notion. 
when things develop, they get better or different. Uh, so you can grow without developing, you can develop without growing, or you can grow and develop at the same time. Uh, just for examples, say a, an embryo would be growing and developing at the same time, both increasing in size and qualitatively changing. Uh, a snowball r rolling down a mountainside would be growing but not really developing. It's just getting bigger by attrition. And uh, it's hard to find an example of something that, that uh, well, it, what develops without growing. Uh, the most salient example is the planet Earth. And the planet Earth, of which we're a part, uh, develops qualitatively by evolutionary change but it is not growing in terms of its mass or its surface area or um, as far as we know or if it is changing it's it's pretty negligible and so is that is that related to your um did you coin the term ilth uh, i wish i had i would <laughs> like to claim that but but that belongs to a much more important person than me that that comes from John Ruskin, okay. uh, who coined that as the opposite of wealth. And uh, and then in modern times, another economist, Kenneth Boulding, uh, has, has used the term uh, goods and bads so that we produce a flow of goods, which is accompanied by a flow of bads, pollution and depletion and Excessive work and exhaustion and congestion. So all of these things. Goods accumulate into a stock over time, a stock of wealth. And bads accumulate over time into a stock of ill. So the total stock of uh, pollution sort of adds up and accumulates and becomes ill. And just as goods accumulate and, and becomes wealth. So development, in your sense, then, is is wealth in the good uh, sense. <laughs> yeah, development is is an improvement in the quality uh, and structure of wealth, and also in the uh, in the ethical priorities to which we to which we use wealth. I, well, I guess a simpler example would be. Development would be the uh, uh, invention of light bulbs that would give more lumens per watt. It would give more light per unit of energy used in the bulb. That would be an improvement in quality of, of the bulb. Um, so growth, LEDs. Yeah, exactly. Growth would just be more incandescent light bulbs. You just have more of the same stuff, uh, and as opposed to having more or less the same amount of better stuff. So okay. that the steady state then would be a limit on growth, but not a limit on development. And in fact, uh, it would be a an incentive to development because development would then become the the path of progress as opposed to 
broke. Well, I, I guess I understand from um, my conversation with Brian Check that um, one of the differences in steady state and classical economics is that classical economics doesn't include the ecosystem, or if it does, it considers the ecosystem a part of the economy as opposed to the other way around where you all talk about that the economy is a part of the ecosystem. Uh, yes, that's, that's, uh, it just seems to me, uh, and to, <laughs> I guess many people, fairly obvious that, uh, that the, the ecosystem is larger than the economy, and the economy is a, a subsystem of, of the ecosystem. We, we extract things from the larger ecosystem, and we expel waste back into the ecosystem, very much like an animal. I mean, we, uh, in one sense, economists have traditionally looked upon the economy as analogous to an animal focusing mainly on the circulation of blood. Production goes from firms to households. Factors go from households to firms. It goes round and round and round. Uh, And they've neglected, by analogy, the digestive tract of the animal. Animals have digestive tracts as well as circulatory systems. And without the digestive tract, the circulatory system will run down pretty quickly. And the circul- and the digestive tract is connected to an environment at both ends. You have to take in low entropy matter energy, useful food, food-like stuff, and then you expel waste. And the waste goes back into the ecosystem. The ecosystem reconstitutes the waste through biogeochemical cycles powered by solar energy into forms that are, again, reusable or ingestible as, as food or as resources. So that's, that's the, uh, the way of thinking. Uh, now, economists haven't thought that way. They've, they forgot, they've abstracted from the larger system. And I think the reason they've done that is understandable because the economy was so small relative to the total system that it really didn't make any difference how much you took in or how much waste you expelled because you were just a very, very tiny part of a great big system. So the the resources were not really scarce. Natural resources were not really scarce. Waste absorption capacity was not really scarce. The only thing that was really scarce was human labor and accumulated capital. So that's what you focused on. Well, so is the digestive tract analogy kind of what you mean by metabolic throughput? Exactly, exactly, yes. Okay, okay. I think I understand. It's probably a, a better word, Metab- metabolic throughput, a metabolic flow. The, the word throughput comes from sort of engineering, a combination of input equal to output is what goes through. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, how how did you um, begin pioneering this idea? Um, You know, what was your life story in the sense of what led you to going in this direction? Um, How did you get that vision of, this is yeah. uh, a change that we need to make. Yeah. Um, 
several things, I guess. I, I should say that I, I didn't start out this way. I started out as a uh, as a uh, regular growth economist. That was my formation in college, and and my uh, I guess my original hope was that I would make my little contribution to increasing the wealth, the GDP, particularly of poor people, and particularly in Latin America. Having grown up in Texas. Uh, I, I was interested in, in that. But experiences teaching in the northeast of Brazil, which is a poor area of Brazil, where I witnessed in, in the time I was there, it was around 67, 68, tremendous increase in the, in the population, you know, a 3.1 or 2% rate of increase in the population. And the upper class of the population was was growing, but much more slowly than the lower class. So the the lower class would, on the average, have a completed fertility of, of say, eight children, roughly, and the upper class would have maybe four. Uh, that's changed since 1968, but that's a huge difference, differential fertility. So it meant that uh, you had a, a more or less um, infinite supply of cheap labor coming from the rapid reproduction of the lower class. Uh, the other thing that I read, was, I read Rachel Carson's book, The Silent Spring, which was a really brilliant insight into the relation of economy and ecosystem, particularly focusing on pesticides in agriculture. But it had, it had far more... Uh, wide ramifications than, than just that. And she understood that, I believe. And, and uh, I thought it was certainly clear. And then the third thing, I guess, I studied at uh, in graduate school at Vanderbilt University under uh, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan, who's a, a Romanian economist who immigrated to the United States. And uh, he was working at the time on what became his magnum opus. It was entitled The Entropy Law and the Economic Process. So he really traced the physical root of scarcity back down into physics, into the laws of thermodynamics and entropy. And uh, and that was tough. So that, that kind of completed a biophysical and ecological picture for me, of of the economy, and and I I begin to conceive of economics really as a life science. Uh, it was not a finance. The finance was sort of superficial. What was really fundamental was that it was part of a life process. Uh, it was what you might call the outside the skin life process. Uh, biology focused on the within skin life process of the flow of of matter and energy and entropy, and economics really looked at the outside the skin life process along with ecology. So economics is really, I, I thought, uh, the relation of economics and ecology was so tight that they couldn't be separated. Um, you talk, um, I guess, in your book uh, for the common good uh, about. Uh, basically a shift in moving 
from something to something. And you have a list of five things uh, that you talk about. Um, from an academic discipline to thought and service of community. Uh, from, am I, I'm, see if I say this right, mm -hmm. uh, crematistics. Yeah, crematistics. Uh, to oikonomia. Yeah. Uh, from individualism to person and community, from cosmopolitanism to communities of communities, and then mm -hmm. from, uh, what is it, matter and rent to energy and biosphere. <laughs> well, and I know you do a chapter on each one. You can't summarize yeah. each one. But Yeah, that but, was... Uh, in that book, For the Common Good, I was co-authored with uh, John Cobb, Jr. He's, he's a, a theologian and philosopher of, of a Whiteheadian school and process thought. And, um, well, what can I say? Those were ways that we thought of um, of creating a broader framework within which to place economics. Uh, so the economics as an academic discipline, well, we saw that there was real problems with academic disciplines, that they were so isolated and that they controlled the universities. I guess the term they use these days is silos, you know, uh, separated little towers that don't interact with each other, but just go higher and higher and deeper and deeper, but don't connect uh, with each other. So that was our uh, our critique of, of economics as a as having become such a discipline, uh, so narrow in its focus. And, and that was hist historical. I mean, it didn't used to be that way. Uh, economics started out as a part of moral philosophy with Adam Smith and and it remained that way for a while, but then it got more and more narrow, I guess, under the influence partly of, of um, this positivism and, and the, this thrust to be value-free and to separate itself from uh, anything which was not totally objective, uh, which we saw as a, as a big mistake. And and rather similarly with, with some of the other things that you mentioned, that it so that you know you're you're using it as a um, <clears throat> means of of helping us shift from thinking about economics just in isolation to recognizing that it's connected as you talked about as a as a life uh, form as a uh, yeah and uh, well one thing with my co-author that I learned from him John Cobb. Uh, his one of his points uh, was that you know in the beginning of the university, uh, what was it? Theology was sort of the, the critic of the disciplines. It was the top. It was sort of the queen and, and critic of all the separate disciplines. And over time, the disciplines themselves had become very strong, and Theology has more or less become reduced to just one more discipline within its own little silo, 
instead of the integrating factor, which brings the values of all the dissonance together into a into a value whole in some service of some higher of a higher good. Uh, so that was part of the of the argument of our book. And then the idea that, that moving away from the individualism that's so part of our community, our, our nation, uh, to a to person in community. Yeah, that, that was part of it as well. Economics is just extremely individualistic. And, uh, and the idea, of, uh, back to the, the, so, the focus of uh, homo economicus, you know, what is the individual unit of the economy? Well, it's it's the economic man, the homo economicus. He's only interested in his own welfare. He's just an atomistic uh, thing related to everything else by only by external relations. It's like billiards on a billiard balls on a table. They just knock against each other, and and they're independent. Uh, as opposed to another, the concept of person and community. Whereby the individual, your, my, my identity is not just that of an, uh, of an individual related externally to everything else, but I am constituted by internal relations with others. So if I, if you say, who, who am I? Who is Herman? Well, he's the son of Mildred and Ed. He's the father of Terry and, and Karen. He's the friend of John and, and David. He's the uh, he's the teacher of so and so and the student of so and so. It's all of these all of these relationships constitute my identity. And if you subtract all of those relationships, there's not much left of me. Uh, maybe there's something like a hole in a donut or something, but it, but there's not much there. So so we should think that the the welfare of an individual is largely a function of the quality of all these internal relationships rather than just the amount of consumption or his, his own uh, very narrowly defined welfare. Now, does that then connect back to the idea of, of development? Uh, 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 oh, yes. Uh, so that yeah exactly development should be seen more in the context of improvement of the of the quality of relationships of persons in community as opposed to the quantity of physical consumptions of isolated individuals well in addition to um kind of stating the facts <laughs> and making corrections in um, economic thought um, about uh, factual things like like you say the metabolic throughput and the uh, the full earth um, you you and your your um, companions in steady state uh, economics mm -hmm. uh, I've noticed, uh, really put an emphasis upon policy, um, and in your in your ecological economics, uh, let me make sure I say this correctly. Um, ecological economics is committed to policy relevance, uh, but you say that in order for that to be relevant, there are 
two presuppositions mm. uh, that you make uh, about policy, uh, one of them being uh, that there have to be real alternatives to choose from, uh, but then the second one being um, that there has to be real criterion of value uh, used to choose. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be um, your segue into connecting economics, not just to the factual issues, but to ethics. Well, yes, uh, that's true. What you just cited there, you know, I, I left teaching economics in an economics department at Louisiana State University and went to the World Bank with the hope that, you know, this would be a policy arena where I could do something. Uh, and then after six years at the World Bank, I, I retreated back to the university again, which at, at the University of Maryland, but this time to a school of public policy as opposed to an economics department. And so I was teaching students who were interested in policy, or at least they, and so um, I, uh, the university is, as you know, is uh, nowadays a very secular place. I mean, they all started out as religious institutions, you know, dedicated to the greater glory of God or to at least to training pastors and, and clergymen. But then over time, I guess, the, uh, there were the problems with, uh, with uh, uh, schisms within the religion and the, the result of problems and disagreements on religious grounds seem to always be resolved by taking one more step towards a secular view rather than a religious view. And, so nowadays it's gotten to the point. I'm, in my experience, and I'm speaking from what just what I've observed. Um, there's not there's a uh, a rather negative view towards anything that is not re that is religious. So they're they're pretty well bought into positivism and to a a uh, let's call it a, a neo Darwinist materialist view of the world. And those, that was the viewpoint of many of my students and colleagues. And so in teaching, I, I felt like there was some, you know, if you take that view, if you take a materialist view and a strictly uh, fundamentalist Darwinism sort of view, there's not much room for policy. You know, everything is already determined. Well, why? Uh, so that was my... My first thought, if, if you're interested in policy, then what things do you have to believe as a presupposition before that interest makes any sense? Well, you have to believe that there's more than one alternative. If there's only one alternative and it's predetermined, then you might as well shut up. You know, you're not going to do anything. And even if there are many alternatives, which are possible, if you don't have any criterion for saying which one is better than the others, no no basis for choosing, then again, you might as well shut up. You have no basis for policy. So those were my ways of kind of cracking into this uh, materialist, deterministic mindset, which is so prevalent 
within the university. I mean, the, the, the students and many faculty sort of have, have accepted this uh, kind of so-called scientific materialism as a, as a philosophy without really realizing the contradictions inherent in it and the bind that it puts them in. So that was the reason for that. That's how that idea came about or that argument. So what's been the, what was, what were the responses uh, when you said (laughs) there's ethics involved here and it requires a choice of priorities? You know, well, I guess the main response was um, that, oh, well, ethics are sort of like values, you know, or no, no, ethics values are almost like taste, or they're very personal. So I can have my values and what's good for me, you know, there was a difficulty in going from a personal judgment about what is valuable to a social judgment that you were willing to defend publicly. So so there was always a retreat. When you got to defending a, a value publicly, there was a tendency to retreat to saying, oh, well, this is, you know, this is my value and you have your values and they all work together in the marketplace to come together or something. Uh, so so I, I guess I should say that, that the reactions w- were mixed. You know, some people saw the logic of it as very clear. Other people uh, resisted it and felt that they were with the kind of suspicion that I was really getting ready to preach a load of values and lay it on them. That I was I was getting ready to deliver a sermon, and that this was my this was my uh, you know, softening them up a little bit so that I could. I impose my values on them. So everyone was very sensitive to the idea of having someone else's values imposed upon them. Well, you, I mean, but you are a Christian, right? And, yeah, and so yes, I am. How, do, how does that interplay with the development of this thought for you? Uh, well, I think it's rather fundamental. I, I don't think um, that, uh, you know, I would find it hard to be Christian, if I really accepted a materialist view of the world, uh, and uh, so, and I or, or turning it around the other way, you could say that my commitment to Christianity more or less rules out a materialist view of the world as, as in, uh, not consistent with it. And the same with value, with the value side of it. That some things really are better than others. Although um, we may we may be unclear about ethical judgments, uh, we're forced to make them, and we do make them, and we need some kind of a of a notion, however however hazily understood, of um, of more ultimate value. So those, and I say, you know, many, of course, many people under, understand that very, very well. But I, I just found that in the in the universities there were quite a few students and faculty who 
strongly resisted all of that as being, uh, oh, that's getting into theology or something. That's uh, hocus pocus. Uh, we're, we're scientists. We're interested in, in uh, only facts. Well, were you able to connect, I guess, with, because um, based on the title of the book, you know, for the common good, uh, mm -hmm. the notion that uh, I may be Christian and you're, you're, you aren't, uh, you're something else, uh, but there are common values um, that we can share and build oh. on. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was that was very much uh, a part of the of the book was to was to do that. In fact, uh, John and I had a little a little discussion at, at the beginning of, of the book. You know, well, we're both Christians. Well, should we should we base should we start out with that and base our arguments on the Christian position, put it out there in front, and then derive from that? Or should we save that for the last and try to deal with the most general notions of value and community and end up, you know, by saying, well, with the Christian position and uh, saying that. And John, John has had far more experience with that than I have. And my initial view was, oh, well, let's just put it all up front. He said, "No, we'll lose our audience." <laughs> he had he had more experience with the with the uh, with that than I had, and uh, he was right. And uh, so I think that's that's in any way that's what we tried to do. Because I know I I um, interviewed Rob Dietz mm -hmm. uh, on his book "Enough Is Enough," and um, at first, you know, given the name of my my show is "Practicing Gospel." Uh, he was a little concerned because mm -hmm. he's not a Christian, and and uh, you know he he wanted to make sure that that uh, my audience understood you know from the perspective in which he came. But at the same time, uh, he he is uh, uh, a steady state economist, you know, yeah. and uh, and that you all share much of the same values. Oh yeah, I I think uh, that. That's very much true. And you have many people who are, you know, really avowed atheists. I mean, many biologists that I know, ecologists, are fundamentally atheists. But they they love the world, and they recognize that uh, they depend on it. And, uh, and so they, they want to save it. Uh, I confess that I, I find it a little bit difficult to really love the world very deeply if simultaneously I believe that it's all just an accident. Uh, you know, if, if it's all just a random product of, of um, infinitely many accidents, infinitely many uh, uh, over infinitely many trials, each of which has an infinitesimal probability and it all comes together into, into creation. That, um, if it's all an accident, I find it hard to really deeply love an accident. Now, <laughs> other, other people, 
evidently uh, find it. Uh, I, I once expressed that to someone, and uh, it didn't get through. Their reply was, "Well, you know, my my third son was an accident, and I love him." <laughs> okay. Well, um, that's fine. I'm I'm glad glad you do. That isn't exactly what I was trying to. <laughs> well, you, you, this has been around for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how do you think you're doing? What, you know, how do you, how do you perceive the progress, uh, in persuading, uh, the economic world? Um, I know, you know, that, the uh, Brian is the, you know, director of, uh, Brian Check is the director of, uh, you know, Center for the Advancement yeah. of Steady State Economics, and there's a collection of you, steady state folk. Um, yes. You know, how do you how how do you gauge your progress? Yeah, that's uh, well. You know, Brian. Uh, just a word about Brian. Brian came out of uh, wildlife biology. What? So he was concerned. He looked at the economy and he said, because he said, I'm interested in preserving wildlife. As long as the economy keeps on growing, I'm wasting my time. There's no way I can preserve wildlife if the habitat is always gobbled up, you know, by. And so he came to an interest in, in the interreaction of ecology and economics, starting from ecology. I came to it in the opposite direction from economics. I said, how can the economy keep on functioning if it gobbles up what it depends upon? And uh, so we sort of came to the same place. And he has a, he is, a, well, he's both a, an academic and a, has become more of an activist. I've, I've not become quite as much of an activist, although I, I sometimes try to be. Uh, all, the other thing we've done is uh, we have a journal called Ecological Economics, and there's you know in worldwide there there's an international society for ecological economics, which has over two thousand members in most countries, and um, and we have biannual. Um, uh, meetings, present papers, and uh, and they're, they're national societies of ecological economics, uh, including in China now. So it's it's growing, but it's still a minority position within the overall political economy spectrum. Um, how are we doing? Well, we're we're making progress, but it's very slow. Uh, that's, I guess, a way of summarizing it. Uh, one way I would, you know, one example, you know, you, you mentioned this earlier, this book by the, the uh, economist Mariana Manzucato, who's a, a young economist and become very influential and, and so forth. Uh, the title of her book is quite interesting to me. It's, uh, uh, Rethinking Capitalism, subtitle, Economics and Policy for Sustainable and Inclusive Growth. Uh, 
Okay, why growth? I mean, if if the title had been Economics and Policy for a Sustainable and Inclusive Economy or Society, then I would say, oh, okay, that's that's wonderful. But what? Why do you say growth? What the idea is that growth can be sustainable? Well, what makes you think growth is sustainable? It doesn't look like it's sustainable. It looks like it's it's uh, really falling apart. And then when you say inclusive growth, why should growth be inclusive? I mean, growth in the past has led to some being extremely rich and some extremely poor. Do you want to include the rich in further growth? Or should growth in the, become not inclusive, but mainly devoted to the poor. So, I, it's just, you know, so why this choice of words? Why the word growth here? I, I don't want to be unfair to, uh, to Masukata because I know that many, I haven't read the book and her book may deal with these issues, even though the title does not lead one to believe that. But I know that publishers very often choose the title of a book quite independently of what the author wants. Uh, so I, I don't want to make too much of that. But just as, just as a way of making a point about the, the, how the word growth has become almost synonymous with economy. You, you can hardly use the word uh, economic without having it followed by growth. Well, that's why I want to say, no, growth can be uneconomic. And, uh, and in a way, economists have always recognized that in microeconomics, because we've said that a firm, the idea of a firm has costs and it has benefits, and it balances the, cost, the marginal costs with the marginal benefits in order to maximize profit. It hits a maximum. At that point, it should stop growing. And we've taught that for years and years in microeconomics. When you come to macroeconomics, and there's no longer any cost of growth, there are only benefits. So you you, you don't have this balancing and this uh, thing. So I, that's, I guess, the uh, well. I'm going on long enough about that. So but the fight still goes on. The fight goes on. The fight. The idea that that you know you can grow the economy while preserving the Ecology, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. We uh, we're going to have both. You're going to. You know, how do you both. how do you see, or I guess, what do you see, are next steps that needs to be taken from where you are now? Hmm. Oh wow! I guess in terms of, of I guess. It, well, I should mention one more. Thing that's happening in addition to the um, ecological economics and steady state, there's a, a growing uh, sort of grassroots movement in Europe mainly, and a little bit in the U.S. called degrowth, which is kind of a horrible word in English, which started in French. They said décroissance, which I guess sounds good in French, but they translated <laughs> into English. Deep deep growth. Growth. Yeah. So I didn't. I never. I thought, gee, that's terrible. We'll get anywhere. 
but it has, and and there's quite a, a a movement of younger folks, and it has its basis not so much in theory and policy, but in social activism, and simply the realization, particularly among the very very young, like for example this um, young young um, woman Greta Thunberg Thunberg from Sweden who's become so famous and so outspoken and uh, and and it has gained a quite a following. So there's this social activist movement which is uh, very sensitive to the cost of growth and from that angle is sort of moving into the picture. So I, I see that as, a, as an encouraging uh, sign. As for the next, um, you know, I, I don't know. That's that's a good that's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. What's the next thing to do? Well, let's just keep on trying to make it clearer and and be patient. And uh, well, have you known any politicians that have actually chosen to run on it? Uh, no, but I've known some politicians who have talked about it and thought about it and wished they could, but realized that they couldn't. Uh, well, I know, even, I guess it, it may be stretching it a little bit to say Al Gore would have, but, uh, you know, if you, re if you read his books before, when he was a senator and then before, uh, he was, he was on the way. And, uh, but I, I wouldn't say he did, he obviously didn't run on a no growth platform. He was too too smart a politician to waste his time doing that. And I think also maybe to some extent in California, Jerry Brown was uh, thinking along those terms. But again, there you have to balance. Um, you know, you have to be realistic. And I learned that you know in my six years at the World Bank. Uh, I, you know, I was in the environmental review department for Latin America, and the whole thrust of the World Bank is to make loans in the service of growth for its member countries. And the environmental review department is to, their purpose is to reduce the environmental, negative environmental consequences of projects. And that makes them more expensive or slows down the rate at which you can push money through the system. And so we were always in tension and so trying to change the World Bank. And so this, it's a similar sort of, of thing. Uh, how do you change the whole society? And how do you change the World Bank? Well, we had an analogy, those of us in the environment department. We said changing the World Bank is like pulling a brick with with a thread and you have to pull it ever so slightly and keep the right tension and if you do it just right you can move the brick slowly but my my difficulty i'd always break this break the thread and have to go back and retie it again <laughs> and, and this was um so 
I don't know. That that's sort of the dilemma that uh, I find. But now I I just say things have gotten so but so bad now that I think just the newspapers and the and the uh, TV. You look at the fires and the floods and the hurricanes and the, and all of this is quite related to global warming, which is totally related to the expansion of the economy and the burning of fossil fuels. So I think this is people are going to and then and then I don't know to what extent we could add the COVID uh, epidemic into that, but it does have some relation by encroachment onto onto wildlife areas. So all of these costs are just becoming so evident now. And um, mentioning that, I'll just give a plug to um, last night or the night before, I saw this uh, documentary by the naturalist uh, David Attenborough. Mm -hmm. He has one out on Netflix now. I think it's fairly new, called um, A Life on Earth, A Life on Earth being his life. So this is his personal testament to what he's witnessed over, I don't know, he's 93, so a a long lifetime of doing nature films. And I've always thought, you know, he's very interesting all of the films and pictures and images that, of nature that he presents. But, you know, he never seemed in the past too bothered about destroying any of it. But now he's, this was the whole focus of his testament that uh, all of this beauty that he's been presenting for his, his lifetime is under severe threat. It's just being demolished. And he's really upset about it. So it was a it was a very powerful combination of word and image, and so I, I recommend it. And you know, if enough people watch that, maybe that will be far more <laughs> influential than academic arguments from economists. Well, I am deeply grateful uh, for your time with me today. Uh, our time is up. Uh, but I want to thank you for your work uh, that you're continuing to do, for the work that you've done. Uh, you've sold me. <laughs> and, and as much as I can, I'm going to uh, help this cause uh, in any way that I'm able. Well, thank you, David. I, I really appreciate your good questions and thoughtful, thoughtful uh, replies to things. Well, thank you for being with me. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net 
to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.